0: Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. The sky and the sea are dark. Clouds gather on a horizon that seems to fade into a bloody sunset. The sea, it is immense, it is gray, and the waves, when you look at them, they reveal a watery void. A raft floats upon the sea, and it is strewed with corpses, and on top of the corpses are dying men. The survivors, piled upon the dead, look out to a point on the horizon— they can see a ship in the distance, tiny and distant against a bloody sky, and they wave rags and bits of clothing to get its attention, hoping that the crew will see them and rescue them from a death on the sea and a death beneath that unforgiving dark sky. The ship, though, drops away below the bloody horizon. The men on the raft, they begin to lose hope. The men on the raft, with the dead and dying beneath their feet, they realize soon that they will join their fallen comrades. That's a description of a painting, an enormous, larger in life work called The Raft of the Medusa by French painter Theodore Jericho, who, by the way, I will probably mispronounce his name throughout this entire podcast because I do not parler français. Just, you know, deal with it. The image, it is shadowy, it's horrifying, and it's a portrait of many men on the brink of death and many other men just past that brink, and it was based on real-life events. The inspiration for Jericho's famous portrait of horror was based on one of the most notorious and scandalous shipwrecks in French history. In 1814, France, which a few decades before had weathered one of the most violent revolutions in history, restored the Bourbon monarchy, and that whole mess is best left as a subject for another podcast. But the Bourbon Restoration is necessary to mention to really appreciate why the wreck of the Medusa and the horror that followed was such a big deal at the time. After the Restoration, France it was making a go of grabbing up African colonies, among them Senegal. And Medusa's mission, when it was wrecked, was to transport French military officers to this new colony that the newly restored monarchy wanted to shore up power in. The man in charge of the Medusa on this voyage was a man called Viscount Hugh de Roy de Chaumoray, a man who did not have a great deal of recent relevant maritime experience. Uh, he had been a naval officer, but that was decades ago, long before the Louis XVI had gotten his head cut off. Uh, nevertheless, despite him not commanding a vessel in years, he was given the Medusa for, it seems, political reasons. He had loyally served Louis XVI, and now he was going to loyally serve, it was hoped, Louis XVIII. Chaumare, he was loyal to the Bourbons and the monarchy. They wanted their people in charge of things like very large boats. Chaumare's lack of recent experience and his political appointment is often cited as the reason for why the Medusa met its disastrous fate. And this guy, he probably deserves it. Chaumare's, he elected to take the frigate. Uh, to Senegal via a route that seemed very, very direct, but it would take the Medusa past several bars and shoals that continued for miles and miles and miles out from the West African shoreline. Many of the waters he decided to sail in were too shallow to safely accommodate his ocean-going vessel, which had a draft of around 19 feet. Uh, the Medusa, it was sailing with three other ships, And they all decided to take slower, more cautious routes around the shallow waters while their fellow vessel moved closer and closer and closer to the shore. Granted, not right next to it. It's not like they can see the shoreline. But still, they are pretty close to the shore. It's getting shallow and it's getting dangerous. Chamari and the men under his command, they were blamed later for not noticing how shallow the water really was beneath them. From their distance, again, they couldn't actually see the shore, so it looked like they were on open ocean, but there were telltale signs that dangerous shallows were lurking just beneath, such as muddy water and white breakers, which don't happen out there on the deeper open ocean. And the Bourbon political appointee, who hadn't had any real practical experience for years, he ignored these supposedly obvious dangers. Uh, Despite the captain's cavalier attitude, though, the shallow waters of the Bay of Arguin made themselves known. Eventually, the Bedusa ended up hitting a bar and the ship began to fill with muddy seawater. It didn't sink instantly or even quickly. Uh, The water rushed into the ship, and the crew and the passengers, they had time to replicate France's class divisions in how they abandoned ship. And this next part is going to sound fairly familiar to anybody who has passing familiarity to what happened when the Titanic went down. The Medusa did not have enough lifeboats. It couldn't actually accommodate everybody who was on board. Shamari and several of his officers, they were able to get themselves into lifeboats and put themselves in a position of relative safety. The people who remained on the Medusa, they were common soldiers and civilians. Uh, And as the aristocrats escaped in boats, the remaining 147 people they had to construct a makeshift raft out of the Medusa's timbers. It was a raft with no rudder, no charts, no compass, and no means of navigation. It had a mast and it had a sail, but that was it. It was hardly a vessel in any real sense. The raft of the Medusa could hold men above the water, it could be buffeted around by the sea and by the wind, but they couldn't really be navigated in any real way. And this is where the true Terrors begin. The original plan for the raft was to have it towed by several of the boats that were also abandoning the Medusa. However, eventually, Shamore and his several officers cut the lines and abandoned the raft and the 147 people on it to their fate. In this raft, it was shoddy, dangerous, and poorly provisioned. The 147 humans on board, they had only a few casks of water and a single bag of ship's biscuits. These scant provisions, they were finished in about a day or so. The waves in the ocean tossed the raft about on the sea, and we have one first-person account from a pair of survivors who wrote a memoir later on, and here is what they said about the first night on the raft. Quote, this whole night we contended against death, holding fast by the ropes which were strongly fastened. "'Rolled by the waves from the back to the front "'and from the front to the back "'and sometimes precipitated into the sea, "'suspended between life and death,' Lamenting our misfortune, certain to perish, yet still struggling for a fragment of existence with the cruel element which threatened to swallow us up, such was our situation till daybreak. Every moment were heard the lamentable cries of the soldiers and the sailors. They prepared themselves for death. They bid farewell to each other, imploring to protection of heaven, in addressing fervent prayers to God. All made vows to him, notwithstanding the certainty that they should never be able to fulfill them. Dreadful situation. "'How is it possible to form an idea of it "'which is not below the truth? "'About seven o'clock in the morning, "'the sea fell a little, "'the wind blew with less fury, "'but what a sight presented itself to our view. Ten or twelve unhappy wretches, "'having their lower extremities "'entangled in the openings "'between the pieces of the raft, "'had not been able to disengage themselves "'and had lost their lives.' Several others had been carried off by the violence of the sea. At the hour of repast, we took fresh numbers. In order to leave no break in the series, we missed 20 men. We will not affirm that this number is very exact, for we found that some soldiers, in order to have more than their ration, took two, even three numbers. We were so many persons crowded together that it was absolutely impossible to prevent these abuses. So on that first night, perhaps 20 people were gone killed from either exposure to the ocean, from falling between the slats in a raft, or possibly from throwing themselves into the sea. The situation on the raft only got worse from there. The captain and the officers had made off with most of the water and food, but they had left behind the Medusa's supply of wine. And the souls on the raft still had that and began to drink wine, alcohol, for their sustenance under the blazing equatorial sun. And the combination of alcohol and trauma did not help matters men fought and again the two survivors who wrote a memoir about this their account details this attempt at what could be called i suppose a mutiny but in my reading of it it's more like a street fight quote the fumes of the wine soon disordered their brains already affected by the presence of danger and want of food Thus inflamed, these men became deaf to the voice of reason, desired to implicate in one common destruction their companions in misfortune. They openly expressed their intention to rid themselves of the officers. There were some military officers who stayed on the Medusa to manage the civilians, about 17 of them, but going back to the survivor's account, who they said wished to oppose their design and then destroy the raft by cutting the ropes which united the different parts to composed it. A moment after, they were proceeding to put this plan in execution. One of them advanced to the edge of the raft with a boarding axe and began to strike the cords. This was a signal for revolt. We advanced in order to stop these madmen. He who was armed with the axe, with which he even threatened an officer, was the first victim. A blow with a saber put an end to his existence. Unquote. This was only the beginning of the conflict. Violence continued on the raft, with the survivors attempting to destroy each other even faster than the ocean or the sun could. And that sun, it baked down on the survivors of the raft, and they endured terrible conditions. Fresh water and supplies were not to be found. So, according to, again, the hand memoir we have of this incident, the strong and the vicious began to kill and eat the dead, the dying, and the weak. Again, from the survivor's memoir, those whom death had spared in the disastrous night, which we have just described, fell upon the dead bodies with which the raft was covered and cut off pieces, which some instantly devoured. Many did not touch them. Almost all of the officers were of this number. Seeing that this horrid nourishment had given strength to those who had made use of it, it was proposed to dry it in order to render it a little less disgusting. Those who had firmness enough to abstain from it took a larger quantity of wine. We tried to eat sword belts and cartouche boxes. We succeeded in swallowing some little morsels. Some ate linen. Others, pieces of leather from their hats, on which there was a little grease or rather dirt. We were obliged to give up these last means. A sailor attempted to eat excrement, but he could not succeed. This state of affairs, of violence and privation, continued for twelve days. And after twelve days of starvation, drunkenness, heatstroke, cannibalism, murder, the Medusa finally saw a small glimmer of hope. In the distance, the men on the raft saw another ship, the Argus, which had been traveling with the Medusa. They began to wave wildly and to signal for it. And this is the moment depicted in Jericho's painting. The Argus, though, soon fell out of view and disappeared below the horizon. Hope had shown itself for a moment, And then, as soon as it had arrived, was gone. The men on the small, floating hell seemed to be doomed. But a few hours later, the Argus found them again, and this was not any sort of rescue mission. The other ships had not gotten word to look for the remaining survivors of the Medusa. There was no real effort to actually bring in the people who had been abandoned on a raft. Their rescue was because of chance, and it's because of that chance that we have most of this story. Again, I've been reading from a survivor's account. And mind you, the deaths did not stop with the rescue. Because of exposure, dehydration, and malnutrition, five more people would die even after being rescued by the Argus. Of the 147 human beings who were left to their fate on the raft de the Medusa, 10 survived. Two of those survivors, men named Alexander Corriard and Henri Savigny, wrote an account of their ordeal, called Narrative of a Voyage to Senegal in 1816, and that's what I've been reading from. Uh, And that title, Narrative of a Voyage to Senegal in 1816, I think that kind of buries the lead a little. Something like Narrative of a Voyage of Madness and Cannibalism, I think that would be a better title for your book. You weren't just going to Senegal, guys. Nevertheless, despite the innocuous title, the book was a sensation. And the tale of the Bedusa became a major scandal in Restoration-era France. The captain, Chamoré, he was court-martialed, and he was found guilty of incompetent navigation in abandoning his ship. Despite all of the human suffering that he was arguably responsible for, this guy, this political appointee, he spent a mere three years in prison. What he did could have potentially got him killed. The charges he faced were worthy of the death penalty. But again, this guy was connected, so he did all of three years. After that incident, reforms were put in place ensuring that naval officers would be promoted based on merit rather than on their political connections. And this is where Theodore Jericho, the painter, comes in. The story of Jericho's painting is nearly as fascinating as of the Medusa itself. To prepare for his massive work, Jericho became Obsessed with the events surrounding the Medusa, and dove into the study of death and decay in a way that, when I was reading about him, constantly reminded me of how Mary Shelley described Victor Frankenstein raiding morgues and graveyards to construct his monster. When I was reading about Jericho, I was constantly impressed by... And sort of repulsed by how much he seemed to dedicate himself to the recreation of misery and pain. And this guy, this 25-year-old artist, he almost seems like some kind of proto-goth kid. And being part of the Romantic movement, I don't think that's too far off from the mark. He was, apparently, during this whole project, in poor spirits during much of the time that he spent working on his painting, The Raft of the Medusa. Uh, He had been having an affair with his aunt, which he had ended... And as an outward expression of how devoted he was to his morbid project, Jericho shaved his head for a duration of the time that he spent working on the painting. He also insisted on working in absolute silence. Noise bothered him. And he insisted that his studio, which, by the way, he wasn't the only guy in, he did have a few assistants, remain completely silent, brush to canvas. And in addition to going out of his way to view dead bodies and decaying flesh every chance he got, Jerichal also got in touch with Coriard and Savinji, the guys who co-wrote the book about the Medusa, and another survivor to construct a scale model of the raft. And this is what really blows my mind. Jericho actually got three survivors, Coriard, Savinji, and another guy, to pose for him, to pose for his work, The Raft of the Medusa. So not only was this guy tenacious enough to track down people who'd suffered through something utterly and completely maddening and traumatizing, he was also able to convince them to recreate one of the most traumatic incidents that they'd ever had the misfortune to live through." Jericho, also, he was suffering himself through this whole ordeal. He had a fever the entire time he worked on the Raft of the Medusa, and his poor and decaying health, which he was ignoring because he was so obsessed with his work, would eventually claim his life. By the way, kind of a footnote, one of the artists most influenced by Jericho and by the Raft of the Medusa was Eugene Delacroix. He was a friend of Jericho's. He actually served as a model for one of the men on the raft. And even if you haven't heard of Delacroix, you've seen his work. You'd probably recognize Liberty leading the people, the picture of the flag-waving topless woman leading a bunch of heroic-looking French guys into battle. But I digress. The finished project of The Raft of the Medusa was a gigantic painting of corpses who in the foreground are larger-than-life Piled upon the sodden raft while the darkness of the sea and sky threatens to enclose them. Other desperate souls are attempting to signal a ship, the Argus, off in the distance. It looks like maybe they're about to be saved, but the Argus is fading away. And Jericho, he did other studies for the work. He actually had a whole bunch of other sketches and paintings that he did before he actually finished this. And those other paintings and studies, they depicted the conflict on the raft, the cannibalism, other incidents. But he chose this moment because when he was interviewing the survivors about the incident, he said that this is where the real low point was. To see hope and then to see that hope taken away very quickly. As Coriard and Savinji put it, from the delirium of joy, we fell into profound despondency and grief. Jericho's painting went on tour and was mostly well-received. Weirdly, when it was first exhibited, it was not called The Raft of the Medusa. It was called Scene of a Shipwreck. But the Medusa incident was pretty well-known in France, and everybody would have known from context what it was really about. Uh, Later on, it was just renamed to The Raft of the Medusa and critics noted that it was not without a certain political angle. The picture did, unmistakably, show a disaster caused by a monarchical political appointee. And several critics noted that Jericho also, notably, had put black crew members in places of prominence on the raft. Also a good thing to note is that Corriard and Savinji, in their memoir. They expressed numerous abolitionist sentiments. This was, after all, a French mission to an African colony. And in their memoir, they constantly advocated for the abolition of slavery and the slave trade. And Jericho's portrayal of African crew members in places of prominence, that seems to echo that sentiment that Coriard and Svingi had in their memoir. And the painting was well-received, but despite all the attention it got, it did not sell until after Jericho's death. Again, he had poor health. He had a fever during the whole 18 months that he worked on this gigantic painting. And that poor health ended up taking him less than a decade after he finished his greatest work. When he died, he was only 32 years old. The painting today hangs in the Louvre, though that's not how I became familiar with it. I have never been to the Louvre, or France for that matter. My first encounter with the Raft of de Medusa was on the cover of the Pogues album, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, one of the better Celtic punk LPs out there. In fact, I would say it's the second best Pogues album after If I Should Fall from Grace with God. So there's your listening recommendation from me. One of the more famous and notable writers who has a on on raft of the Medusa is Julian Barnes. And this is what he had to say about the painting, writing in The New Yorker. Barnes said, How do you turn catastrophe into art? Nowadays, the process is automatic. A nuclear plant explodes. We'll have to justify it and forgive it, this catastrophe, however minimally. Why did it happen, this mad act of nature, this crazed human moment? Well, at least it produced art. Perhaps, in the end, that's what catastrophe is for. I find that assessment of Barnes's to be troubling and more than a little cynical. I don't think that the function of a catastrophe is, is to produce art. And I certainly would not be comfortable with saying that to somebody who had to deal with trauma, like what happened on the raft of the Medusa. So I don't think art is what a catastrophe is for. But I do think that Jericho was able to look at a scene of violence and horror and somehow distill that into something meaningful and even insightful and intriguing and interesting. I'd like to flip around Barnes's words and say, in the end... That is what art is for. Interesting times. We are recorded at the offices of X-Ray FM, 91.1 and 107.1 in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Uh, The engineer is Arthur Risotto. And if you would like to support the show, I do hope you would like to support the show, uh, you can do so at Patreon. We are entirely, 100%, completely, utterly totally supported by our generous, generous Patreon supporters. This is an ad-free podcast. I work for you. I do not work for advertisers. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com and click on Support Interesting Times on Patreon to do that thing. Uh, Also, we are on iTunes. Go to iTunes, give us five stars, give us a review. That also helps out the show. It lets other people discover this thing. Uh, we're on Stitcher. Uh, I am on Facebook, facebook.com Interesting Times with Joe Streckert. Uh, Twitter and Tumblr at Joe uh, Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next week.